Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Residency Podcast. I'm John Barlow, Incoming Program Director, and I'm excited to tell you more about our program through the next few podcasts. As we all know, COVID-19 has dramatically affected the landscape of America and the world. Certainly, between caring for patients with COVID-19, avoiding exposures, quarantining, and managing all of the social distancing requirements, there's been dramatic changes to both orthopedic surgeon schedules as well as residency programs. Today, I'd like to welcome two guests to help give some insight to, into the Mayo Clinic response to COVID-19, in addition to the Mayo Orthopedic Residency response to COVID-19. I think it's gonna be very educational, help you to see what kind of processes we've gone through over the last few months. The first I'd like to introduce is Norm Turner, who is a foot and ankle specialist here and was program director for almost 10 years He's just leaving and uh, handing over the reins to me. Obviously, he's going to be around for a while longer to help the transition, but he worked a lot with the COVID-19 protocols, with the residency program, and certainly with the educational process through COVID-19. Welcome, Norm. Thanks for having me, John. In addition today, I'd like to welcome Brandon Ewan, who's a Harborview-trained traumatologist. Obviously, trauma was uh, continued to happen through COVID-19, and it was difficult to manage call schedules, call pools, and call expectations, particularly in the urgent and semi-urgent categories. So he's going to give us some insight into how Mayo Clinic navigated dealing with traumatic injuries through COVID-19, and certainly how we've transitioned back to a more normal practice. Welcome, Brandon. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Norm, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the early response that Mayo had to COVID-19 and how this all rolled out? Yeah, I think uh, uh, we realized, as the rest of America was realizing what was going on, um, and we, uh, fortunately enough where we are, we did not see that first wave. Um, but we knew about our colleagues, what they were dealing with, uh, especially in New York, uh, uh, and the challenges that they had. Um, so nationally, there is some uh, uh, directives uh, to minimize use of PPE. Uh, we had to have ventilators uh, spared. Uh, so the Mayo Clinic, as long uh, as with many other institutions, went on a um, ban on elective surgery. Uh, so we had an eight-week period uh, from the middle of March to the middle of May uh, where we did not do any elective orthopedic surgery. Uh, during that time, obviously, we were doing trauma and uh, urgent uh, uh, cases, uh, such as uh, oncology cases and infection. Um, uh, so that uh, was kind of when we first, uh, 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 when that first put a hold on our practice. From the educational aspect, it became obvious to us this is going to have a major impact. Uh, case numbers are going to be affected. What are we going to do education-wise if people aren't in an operating room or they're not in clinic? Um, so that, uh, was definitely an interesting time. Yeah. And, and certainly I don't think anybody in their lifetime, uh, has seen anything quite like this. And, um, it was, uh, to watch what happened across the country, particularly in New York city, but then across the globe, 
in response to this. It was, it was a scary situation and really dramatically changed everything. I think we're, we're thankful to be at Mayo Clinic and uh, they were really at the forefront in terms of both testing but now developing of uh, treatments and protocols. And um, it's been an amazing thing to see as we've gone through it and we continue to navigate through that. Uh, Dr. Ewan, particularly as you had to navigate with people still having uh, severe uh, traumatic injuries, what happened with the trauma practice as you went through and how did you manage call expectations both for faculty and residents through that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, we were navigating that a little bit blind at first too, trying to figure out the right way to both minimize exposure for all of the faculty and for all of the residents. And also not only to minimize their exposure to the hospital and to potentially exposure to COVID positive patients, but also to each other when the residents, and I'm proud to say that we have a very collegial program here. The residents spend a lot of time together when they're in the hospital. They work together to take care of patients and take care of issues that they have while they're in the hospital. And they're used to interacting with each other in a pretty close fashion. And we had to devise a way that we could, you know, try to isolate teams of residents that they would still be able to have that collegial interaction with each other to take care of what needed to be done but they would try to minimize the interaction that they were having with other groups of residents so that in the event of an, of an exposure that we didn't have the entire, you know, a third of the program or something like that going on quarantine all at the same time. Now, as far as the clinical practice went for non-elective surgery and for trauma, it, I think just like everywhere else, we saw a slow decline in the amount of vehicular trauma and that sort of thing that happened when travel was slowing down and people were starting to uh, self-quarantine. But of course, that led to a lot of people doing like home projects and falling off ladders at home as well. So I think the trauma volume still remained relatively steady during the whole time that we were on the ban on elective surgery practice. But just like the residents are very collegial, I'm lucky to be part of a group of staff that are extremely collegial as well. And we all work together, not only the trauma staff, but also the non-trauma staff, sports surgeons, arthroplasty surgeons, shoulder and elbow surgeons, everybody working together oncology surgeons to try to cover the call and non-elective surgery responsibilities from a faculty standpoint during that same period of time. So we had a lot of forethought that went into how that schedule actually worked to make sure that we spread out the call responsibilities evenly and didn't have just somebody with upper extremity experience or just somebody with pelvis and acetabular experience or just someone with foot and ankle experience on all at the same time that we could spread those things out and take care of all the patients that were still coming in in a timely fashion without um, or, or sorry, with minimizing amount of cross exposure between the staff and the residents. Yeah, and I think with essentially no exception, everybody really stepped up um, in spite of uh, some anxiety or concern about what this may look like. And I think everybody really stepped up and chip, chipped in and um, everybody was ready to do their part. And um, it, it really made it a fairly smooth process. Uh, and even through that, I think we've had maybe because of it, we've had very low level of exposures or other concerns. And I think a lot of the emergency protocols that we sort of set up, we've been able to roll back some without having um, faculty and residents uh, becoming affected by COVID-19. So we've been pretty fortunate in terms of that. Dr. Turner, can you tell us a little bit about what the general emotional um, response was to this? What was the general feeling of the residents and faculty as they went into the early phases of the elective shutdown, and then now as, we, as we've as we moved through this and back into some more 
uh, quote unquote normal life? I think the, uh, the like most things, the fear of the unknown, what is this going to uh, be? How are we going to handle it? Uh, we, as Brandon talked about, we started a platoon system so that we could isolate. Uh, we uh, went through that, but we never really had to bring back up people in. We had a system set up with our general surgery colleagues, our ICU colleagues, our ER, our ER colleagues to have residents go down uh, and work there. You know, luckily we never had to uh, activate that system. Uh, so a lot of time and effort went into planning systems, but unfortunately we didn't have to put into place. Um, I think uh, uh, we've been uh, uh, fortunate as we've gone back to our elective practice. Uh, we got back and have been very busy since the start. Uh, so our volumes have really uh, bounced back very quickly. Um, so I think that that part has, has you know, made everyone excited to, to be back helping people and doing what we enjoy doing. Um, um, so uh, there's still obviously worries about second waves and what's going to happen. Right. And I think there's still the unknown about exactly um, how this all gets resolved or how we navigate through it. Dr. Yuen, talk about where the surgical practice is now uh, compared to, let's say, three months ago and what that return to surgical practice has been like in terms of all and what's going to happen in schools, uh, all of that exposures. Yeah, the return to surgical practice was also a, a new experience for everyone in terms of how do we gradually get the workforce returned to the right places for the elect to support the elective surgical practice and also limit the amount of exposure for people in terms of cross coverage and that sort of thing as they got back to it. But everything went, I mean, we were lucky again, as Dr. Turner said, and that our level of exposure here was relatively low, but the return to surgical practice was in, my, in retrospect, much quicker and more rapid than I would have ever thought it was going to be both for the elective surgery practice where there was a large backlog, I think of patients who were you know, anxious to get in and have surgery that they thought that they'd been putting off and a small amount of patients that were still kind of awaiting and, and thought that they would put off surgery until COVID had kind of calmed down at some point in the future. And I think that this has been true nationally as well as here. We had um, some of the busiest trauma months that we've ever had in the, in the you know, recent past in uh, end of May and into June and July. Uh, in recent memory, Certain, certainly by surgical numbers, some of the busiest numbers we've ever had on trauma in June. And I think that probably was a lot rec or a um, reflection of a lot of people getting back out to um, off of quarantine and doing some more recreational activities outside and, be, and getting injured. Yeah, a little bit of pent up, a little bit of pent up excitement and enthusiasm after uh, being secluded for a few uh, weeks and months there. Uh, Dr. Turner, can you talk about have there been um, uh, many instances of concerns about safety amongst the faculty or residents or um, need for different protocols there. And obviously, some of this is HIPAA protected, but in general terms. I think we, there was uh, concerns. Um, uh, Mayo did an outstanding job of uh, getting the appropriate PPE, uh, the N95 masks. Uh, we all were trained right away on how to use them, how to be fitted properly, tested properly. Um, uh, so all the protocols were put into place. Uh, so of course there was worry about it, but I think they did a great job in rolling it out. We were fortunate enough to uh, have had the appropriate uh, PPE throughout the whole, uh, uh, or so far throughout this whole pandemic. Uh, um, uh, so um, which has been uh, uh, one of the main worries that we as staff and as residents have. And, and thankfully, an ex exceedingly low rate of exposures uh, between faculty or residents and otherwise. So um, I think the safety has been paramount and 
it, all of the protocols have been effective. Dr. Turner, staying with you, can you talk about what happened with the educational process? Obviously, even though the clinical practice stopped, it was all of our goal that we continued to maintain a robust educational process through COVID-19, and a lot of that went virtual. Can you talk about sort of the processes that went um, that came into play during that? Yeah, I think the silver lining in this whole thing will be the conversion to a virtual curriculum. Uh, so we we're fortunate enough to develop a virtual curriculum we had always had been working on, but never got to the point of completion. Uh, so we have a Blackboard curriculum now for our residents uh, in almost all our uh, subspecialties that really has uh, didactics, it has articles, uh, pre and post tests. Um, so that's worked out really well. That'd be the long-term kind of benefit of this. Um, during the pandemic and when we were on shutdown, uh, the education actually thrived. Uh, so uh, there was three to four hours a day of didactics. Uh, there was journal clubs. Uh, um, so the residents were engaged. Uh, uh, there was each subspecialty area had daily lectures. Um, uh, residents were involved in some of the so uh, specialty society lecture series. Uh, so across the country, the orthopedics uh, group uh, really stepped up educationally. Uh, uh, and, uh, and we were fortunate enough to take advantage of some of the national stuff. And then uh, our, in our department stepped up and, and did an outstanding job. Uh, and now we really have really high quality uh, educational curriculum that we'll be able to use as we go forward. Yeah, it, it sure seems like a lot of that curriculum can be enduring. And I think we'll see some of the Zoom conferences as um, so some of us at, at Mayo travel frequently where we can continue to stay engaged at the conferences locally and otherwise. So I think it was interesting because I went, I transitioned from having never done a Zoom meeting or a, a web meeting to doing six hours a day of Zoom meetings with residents and other faculty. And, um, and it, I, I really thought it was actually a really nice way of moving the educational curriculum forward, even in the absence of clinical practice. So I thought that that really worked well. I think there's other parts yeah, that we will find out that will really work. Uh, for example, if you have a research meeting, it's pretty hard to have a statistician at it. But now it's easy with Zoom. So you can have people that are uh, uh, outside your area Zoom in uh, and really bring expertise uh, to a discussion that you don't routinely have. That's great. Yeah, no, no question. Uh, Dr. Yuan, what are your thoughts? What's uh, the current state? You said trauma is really just about as busy as it's ever been. The, uh, where, where do we stand with the surgical practice now? What do you foresee for maybe the next six months or so moving forward in terms of it? Obviously, nobody knows the future, particularly with COVID-19. But what are your thoughts and um, what's the outlook for the next, say, six months? I think probably best summarized as being cautiously optimistic. You know, the thing that we're all having in the back of our minds is, is there going to be another need to quarantine or to have limited staff or to stop elective surgery again? And obviously nobody can predict that, but certainly, whereas before it was kind of um, rapidly brought on us, I think now people have time to think about it and prepare. And certainly the uh, minor inconveniences that come from interruptions in practice or interruptions in staff consistency and things like that, that we would have um, uh, made a big deal about before are something that are going to kind of be a speed bump in the road now, for sure. The type, you know, I, I anticipate at some point we're going to have somewhat more 
um, unexpected staff absences due to quarantine, whether that's because even surgical staff versus OR staff versus staff that helps us in clinic uh, or residents even potentially. So those types of things, I think we are all have in the back of our brain that could potentially happen. And those are things that we're mentally uh, preparing for in addition to having protocols or other plans in place to, to prepare for. And there are certainly things that now that we know exactly how bad it can get um, and how we've seen how bad we've seen it get, that we know that uh, being proactive is the right thing to do in the future. Yeah, no question. And I think that's the that was uh, one of the main goals, as I understand it, of flattening the curve is allowing us to really learn and adapt to the processes. And now I think every division, every department, and certainly the residency program has ramped down protocols for slowing the practice down if necessary for PPE, has uh, quarantine protocols, has testing protocols. And it's uh, been a dramatic change in terms of both the knowledge level, but also the testing sophistication and treatment sophistication of COVID-19 over the last several months. And, and I think we're in a much better spot than we were. Dr. Turner, any thoughts about how this could impact um, residents moving forward? Let's say, do you anticipate needing to prolong residencies or otherwise in, in, in this case, or has there been discussion about that? Yeah, there has been nationally about that. And I think probably the best example is this is be similar to what would expect if someone had a medical leave uh, for an eight-week period of a, of a medical leave is how most places are looked at it. And I think that's probably appropriate. I think in a course of a five-year uh, residency, um, eight weeks uh, of downtime uh, probably is going to have a limited uh, effect. Now, in a fellowship, probably more of an effect, uh, losing two months of your 12 months. Uh, but for the residents, I don't think it will have much long-term impact uh, the uh, as long as it, things kind of continue to have smooth sailing. Yeah, that's great. And I think I think there's some flexibility built into the system to be able to accommodate uh, some of these variations. And certainly, I think the national agencies will take into account the effects of, of COVID-19. Well, guys, thanks so much for uh, joining me and talking to me a little bit about the COVID-19 process at Mayo Clinic. And I think to summarize what you guys have said, certainly this pandemic has hit... Um, us in similar ways to the national, um, to it, to the way that it has nationally in terms of just the impact and the uh, concerns and anxieties about what this may become. I think, um, thankfully, due to preparations at Mayo Clinic and just due to geography and other uh, situations, I think we've been less hit than some other ways, but we continue to really be, uh, our hearts and prayers are with those who've been really affected in a much deeper way across the country. And I think that ultimately, as we look back on this, I think we'll see that we learned a few things about who we are. I think we've learned a few things about how to deal with very difficult situations. And I think we've certainly found new and adaptable technologies through virtual meetings and otherwise that'll really enhance the residency program going forward and not be a huge detriment to those residents who are here or those future residents that come into the program. So I really appreciate each of you joining uh, today. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me, John. And we look forward to uh, continuing to learn and educate through this Mayo Orthopedic Residency Podcast. Thank you.